Well, all right, come on back and uh, here, you want to get your Bibles, but then you also want this. I'm peddling these again. I'm peddling these. You want to get this handout, which is my chicken scratch, and you're going to need that. See that? All right, you got that? You're going to need my chicken scratch, and I gave you this too, the chronological timeline of the kings and the prophets to help you. Uh, So get these two and put them in your Bible. I handed them out before, but uh, that was during 1 and 2 Kings. But um, Jan, you bring me that stuff under your Bible, please. Thank you. And uh, you're, you're going to really be blessed, I think, if you understand the history of about the period of what we're talking about. So we'll go through that in a minute. But if you're new to the Bible, and some of us are, which is totally fine, and what a blessing it is that you're learning, you know, you might want to go to the table of contents, which is in the beginning. And we just finished Song of Solomon on Sundays, and look what happens after Song of Solomon. There's a guy or a prophet named Isaiah. So we're about, we already did Isaiah. We're going to do Jeremiah, another prophet. Here's what I want to tell you. There's four major prophets and 12 minor prophets. What is a prophet? A prophet is called by God with a word for their nation or country or culture. It's not necessarily foretelling something, like predicting something. It's mostly forth telling what God tells them to say. Get it? Well, all of it is. It is all what God tells them to say, but many times, most of the time, it's just telling them what's happening according to God's perspective. That's what a prophet is. And so you have four major and 12 minor, but don't think the minor are like lesser. They're not less important. They're just called minor prophets because they're smaller books. That's all. So who are the prophets, Isaiah, you see that there in your table of contents, Jeremiah. Jeremiah actually also wrote Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. There you go. You've got the majors. Now let's go to the minors. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Malachi finishes out the Old Testament right there. You know, there's some folks in places that don't like to study prophecy or the prophets. Well, when you do that, you've just precluded yourself from studying almost somewhere between one quarter and one third of the Bible. So it must be important. So tonight, as we've already done Isaiah, we're going to begin tackling Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah. Now, here's what I want to read to you first. Read along with me, and then we're going to pause and do an intro for a long time. (laughs) And that's this. First chapter, first verse goes like this. The word of the Lord. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, In the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, mark that, Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign, it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, 
until the end of the 11 years of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. And we're going to pause right there. See, I don't see how you can understand the Bible, especially the Old Testament. My friends, the Reynolds aren't here. They kid me because I say this over and over again. I don't see how you can understand the Old Testament if you don't know this one date. I would write it down. It's 586 B.C. In 586 B.C., a country called Babylon came down out of the north and scooped up the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and took them back to Babylon. And there's a whole book about young men who were there and talk about it, and it's called the book of Daniel, right? And so Babylon invaded Judah in 586 B.C. But let me just tell you one more thing. Don't tune out. I know it's history. But if you get this, you're going to love Jeremiah. You see, what happened was, that's only two of the 12 tribes, Judah and Benjamin. What happened to the other 10? Well, earlier in time, in 722 B.C., Assyria, a different world power that was prior to Babylon, came to the north, the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom was called Israel. I know that's confusing because both together are Israel, but the northern kingdom was also called Israel. And in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was taken out, ripped out by the Assyrians. Almost, what, 160 years later, in 586 BC, a new world power came on the scene, Babylon. And Babylon came and took out Benjamin and Judah out of that southern portion of Israel called Judah and took them back to Babylon. Now, why did I tell you all that? Because you just read about it until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. You see this? Here's what I want to tell you about the book of Jeremiah. It isn't a drama, I guess it is, or a comedy or a love story, although it is a love story over 60 times, Jeremiah talks about the heart. I guess it is a love story, but you know what it really is? It's a tragedy. Because here this was, this people group who God picked way back in the Old Testament. He picked this people group that came from Abraham, the Jews, Israel. He picked them, not because there's something great and special, but because God wanted to show his love to the world through a peewee little country called Israel. And God even describes their relationship that God made, the relationship that God made with Israel as a betrothal, a marriage. They were in covenant relationship together. And God said this, these kinds of things. After he made the Ten Commandments, he said, if you'll walk in my ways and not run from me, you'll be blessed. But if you don't, you'll be cursed. So to walk in my ways. And God and they enjoyed a wonderful fellowship together. Remember, the story of the Jews comes through one family, Abraham and his family, that turns into 12 families that gets taken into Egypt and lives there for 400 and plus years in slavery and bondage. And God calls the people out of Egypt. 
and he shows his faithfulness uh, to these people, and he brings them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Most of you are going, okay, I know, I watched the Prince of Egypt, I know what's going on. Joke, it's just a joke. And uh, brings them through the Red Sea, and then he wants to take them into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. He wants to protect them and provide for them. But because of their unbelief, something that should have just taken months took 40 years, but God was patient with them in the wilderness, and he loved them. And then eventually, right, after Moses makes a boo-boo and slams a rock, Moses was the one who was going to take him into the promised land, but he doesn't get to, but his understudy does, and that's Joshua. And God takes him into the land. Now, this is important for the story here tonight. You're like, come on, let's get going. But this is important for the story. God gave, when they were going into the land, different portions of the land to the different tribes. But to the tribe of Levi, you actually just sang about it and you didn't even know it. What was the song we just sang? But anyway, I'll have to think about that. But uh, the tribe of Levi, everybody's getting land, portions of land in Israel. Boom, 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 boom. And then God gets to Levi or the Levites who were responsible for the administration of the worship and the sacrifices in Israel. You think that's a pretty important job? In fact, the the priests come from the Levites. Oh, this is what we sang. God says, I'm not going to give you any land, but I'm just going to be your portion. We sang it. God said, I'm going to be your portion. Levites, priests, He didn't want them uh, 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 preoccupied with all the worldly things that land and houses and all that sort of thing. And he just said, I'm not going to give you land. I'm going to give you myself, and you're going to be coming into the uh, temple and doing the sacrifices and all that sort of thing. Everybody tracking with me? That's Levites. But what he did do was he sent them out to different cities throughout Israel. He sent them into the cities. They didn't have land to call their own for their tribes, but he sent them into cities to kind of be like the spiritual, you know, leaders of those regions. Why did I tell you that? Why did I go through that whole thing? Because there's a word here. There's a place that Jeremiah's from. He's from Anathoth. Guess what that is? It's a priestly city. So here you have Jeremiah which means Jehovah establishes the son of Hilkiah, which is a, look at this, which is a very common name in the Old Testament. But one Hilkiah had uh, a great role in the coming back to God in the history of Israel. I'll tell you about that in a minute. They grew up, they were a family of priests, So Jeremiah grew up in a priestly family in a priestly city. So he was the son of a priest in a priestly city in the land of Benjamin, and that place is about three miles to the north and to the east of Jerusalem. Very close to Jerusalem. It's as if he could see the gates of Jerusalem or the temple up there, but he looked down towards the Red Sea. That's where this is. Anathoth, a priestly city. So he's there, and the word of the Lord comes to him in the days of these people, Josiah, the son of Ammon. Now, this is where these come into play. I gave you these so you could track along. 
because I don't know that you could follow along. Now, over here's my chicken scratch, and this is how I learn this stuff. Over to your right, Judah, inside of that, to the left of Judah, is Israel. Remember, there's two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. And look at the bottom. Going down about midway to halfway, or just beyond halfway, is a man named Amon, who is a king from 642 to 640. Everybody with me? Under the heading of Judah. He was a Judah king, a king of Judah, Amon. But listen, here's what I want you to know. Jeremiah was born when Manasseh was the king. Look above Amon. There's a guy named Manasseh. Manasseh was the most evil king in the history of the southern kingdom. Are you catching that? So Jeremiah grew up in a priestly city with a priestly family in this area called Judah where the king had gone so far away from God that the Bible says he was the most evil king ever to uh, be over Judah. Well, look what happens next. He dies and gives way to Amon. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and continued his father's evil practices, but as you can see, he only lasted about two years. Then he gives way to Josiah, 640 to 608. Now, Josiah is interesting. Guess how old, if you get this, Jared Younger will buy you ice cream at Al's. For the whole year, free. How old was Josiah, Jan's going to get it, so Jared, you're in trouble, when he came to be the king? How old was Josiah? Anybody know? Huh? Whoever said eight, Jared owes. Oh, Jared said eight. Okay, so, so Josiah was eight years old when he comes to uh, power or he comes to be the king, and he creates some reforms. Now listen, write it down, reforms. Reform is different than repentance. And he has a real experience with the Lord and actually makes some reforms. What were some of the reforms? The reforms will tell you what was so diabolical and evil in the land of Judah? He t- took down the poles, P-O-L-E-S, that they worshipped in the high places. He tore them down. He got rid of tons of false idols. Ezekiel, a different prophet, even says during the time of Judah, they brought different idols into the temple, man. Later on... Not at, the, not at the time that Jeremiah is receiving this word, but later on, a guy named Hilkiah, who some people believe was his father, but remember, it's a very common name in the Old Testament, is actually looking around one day in the temple. This is how, how far away they've gotten from God. Is looking around in the temple in some room, in a dusty room, and he finds this book and he's like, oh, what's this? And he opens it up, and it's real dusty, and blah, 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 blah. And he opens it up, and it's the five books of the law. And he takes it over to Josiah, and Josiah's like, what is this? We haven't been, why don't we read this anymore? Why, why haven't, you know, rips out his hair, all the whole shooting match, right? Just really sad, really, okay, are you catching it? And so Josiah makes public reading of the law uh, something again, and he seeks to live by the law, but he didn't even know about it. That's how far afield they'd gotten from this. Can you, can you believe it? 
Okay, so that's Josiah. So look, if you're looking at this, Jeremiah is prophesying during the time of Josiah. We'll talk about that in a minute. But then Josiah dies in 608 B.C. What is the date you have to know in order to know the Old Testament? 586. We're not there yet. We're going from, this has always confused me when I started the Bible. We're not starting from zero and going up. We're starting from 4,000 and coming down to zero. And so, (laughs) you know, Josiah reigned from 640 B.C. to 608 B.C., but then he died. And this next one, Jehoiahaz, he returned everything to idolatry. He was actually exiled into Egypt by a pharaoh, and so he gave way after he went out to Egypt to his brother, Jehoiakim. You can find him in 2 Kings 23, etc. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and guess what he did? He put taxes on the people to pay Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And the people got real mad with him, and the king of Babylon got real mad with him because he wasn't, he was, you know, not paying all his taxes. And so, you know, he really caved this Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim gives way to a guy named Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim. He only lives three months, so we aren't going to talk about him too much. Who gives way to Zedekiah, which is Josiah's third son. You can just follow along my chart. Over here, this chart's beautiful because it shows you the contemporary prophets. That's why I gave it to you, the prophets who were alive at the time. But But Zedekiah is this last king of Judah. And look here, 597 to what date does it say in my chicken scratch? 586 B.C. Because what happened in 586 B.C.? At the end of Zedekiah's reign, or during Zedekiah's reign, Babylon comes in and takes out all of them, right? All the Jews. By the way, Zedekiah in the Bible was first named Metaniah, renamed to Zedekiah. He was real weak, um, had all these officials around him that gave him terrible advice. And what he would do, and this is important for the story, I know I've said that a lot, but it is, he would ask Jeremiah, what should we do according to God's plan? And then Jeremiah would tell him, and then he'd run to the other countries who were threatening him, people like Babylon and Egypt, and say, let's make a pact. Instead of trusting in the Lord, he was trusting in political alliances. Get that? So anyway, he did those things that were evil in the sight of the Lord. And so that's important that you know all of this thing or all of this because, see, Judah was just spiraling out of control. And you're going to learn tonight a lot of the things that we're doing What's interesting is, I want you to see something. I'm going to get in trouble for this. There wasn't some sort of political agenda that God had. There wasn't some sort of socio-economic thing that God did. Here's what God did. God chose a man, one man, to go and stand for him in a nation of people who were committing spiritual harlotry. One man, you say, my goodness, well, okay, what's that all about? Well, I see ladies and men and boys and girls here, and God is calling you. Because the Bible says that he created works for you, that you should walk in them. And he knew those works 
before you were even born. In other words, he's calling you, and he's calling you in a time just like Jeremiah, which, watch this, not many people really pay attention or care what God says about how to live life daily. No one even cares anymore. Well, that's one thing they did uh, that was happening. They didn't, they didn't even care about God on a daily basis. And something that marked the time of Jeremiah is the public life was dominated by pagan ideas. Oh my gosh, folks. Do I really even have to say anything about our current society? I mean, the pagan of all pagan ideas, everything that God has asked us to do for our safety and health and to honor him, we've gone the other way. Just turn the TV on for five seconds. And then another thing that the Lord was concerned about and is really a problem in our society is that many people then, just like many people now, treat God and religious things as something that will do as an obligation or a duty, but there's not really much devotion in their hearts or our hearts. That's what was going on in Jeremiah's time. So this one says, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah. See, you're never going to forget that. Hilkiah was a dad who may have been the one who served King Josiah and found the book of the law. Isn't that interesting? He uh, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of this Josiah, the son of Ammon, you got your handy-dandy little sheet, you're going to follow along perfectly, the king of Judah in the 13th year uh, of his reign. It also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. Now, notice in Jeremiah, they skipped a couple kings. Why do you think they skipped a couple kings? Because a few of them just served for a couple, one year, two years, or a couple months, so they weren't that prominent, so... Um, the writer here just doesn't include them. No big deal. King of Judah, uh, or until the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. Remember, Jeremiah ends in a tragedy. They turned their back on God. They didn't listen to God. They didn't repent as he told them. They didn't have a real heart for God. They just had surfacey stuff, and they ended up in Babylon. <whistles> Sounds like us. Well, listen to this in verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Uh, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go go to uh, all to whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand, touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, Well, I see a branch of an almond tree. And then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I'm ready to perform my word. 
And the word of the Lord came to me the second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot and it's facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I'm calling all the families of the kingdoms in the north, says the Lord. They shall come and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Therefore, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, its priests, and against the people of the land. But they will fight against you. They shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Now, what is all of this about? And does it apply to me in any way? Well, I think... The Bible is calling you to a time of crisis because as my wife reminded me in the car as we were driving here, turn over, or you don't have to, you can, I'll read it to you. Turn over to Hebrew, uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 is startling because you know what, Ephesians starts out, man, and it's so like beautiful for you. You're just like, man. All these things that are true of me in Christ. So it's so American to say that. Oh, look what I get because of what Christ did. And yet, Christ did give us all these things. And it just starts out chapter one, chapter two. So, so beautiful, so wonderful. And uh, then finally, Paul says to the Ephesus church, the Ephesians church, this amazing, beautiful church that goes out and shares the gospel in all of Turkey uh, or Asia Minor, just, just dynamic church. He says, well, I know it's wonderful. I know you got the coffee bar over there and you, know, you got the uh, rock wall and everything's going really amazing over at your church. But I got to tell you something. Finally, he says, brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord and then the power of his might. I don't know about you, but when you read that, don't you go, well, wait a minute. What exactly do I need to be strong for? <laughs> What's coming around the corner? Why do I need to be strong? Well, here it is. Put on the whole armor of God because you have an enemy. Now, it doesn't say that, but that's what it's saying because you need to stand against this enemy of your soul. He's got wiles. He's cunning. He can come and, and, and be very tricky with you, the devil, for we don't wrestle. That's a word. I mean, wrestle. Wait a minute, you just told me all these amazing things that are amazing about me and Christ. I'm going to be wrestling? Yeah, not against flesh and blood, against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, a spiritual host. Therefore, take up this armor that you may be able to stand in an evil day. You mean there's a chance that I won't be able to stand? That's what I'm thinking when I'm reading this. Whoa, hold on. This is powerful. Something powerful is coming against me, coming against you. You're, in fact, in a battle. You know, you think you wake up and you say, well, you know, I got to pay my bills and, you know, I got to, you know, make sure I post enough on Instagram so I have enough followers and, uh, you know, I better check Facebook for a while, at least one or two hours at a time. And then, 
you know, I got to go there and I got to get some coffee and put the little squirrely thing in the top and take a picture of it so everybody knows how cool I am. And, and the funny part about this whole thing is we're doing all this stupid stuff. And the Bible tells you you're, you're, you're right down in a battle where a war is raging for the souls of men and women, boys and girls. And here we are trying to sell millions and millions of CDs and get on Spotify and get our image up on Instagram, and yet God calls us just to approach and love people. How can we do it when we're doing all the dumb stuff, the insignificant stuff? Here, he says, you're standing right in a battle, and it's dangerous, and if you don't know how to operate in the battle, you're going to get swept up. You're going to get knocked over. So gird up yourself and do stand in all these things that I've provided for you because every day, every morning, all day, you're in a battle. You're in an army. We're in an army. Well, why do I say that? Because here, a prophet is called. And you say, well, my goodness. Okay, that's a prophet. He's over in 6-something B.C. You gave me this stupid little handout. What does this have to do with me? Well, see, he called one man to go Uh, uh, witness and shout and proclaim judgment. Now watch this. On people who he probably didn't want to go say it to. You ever had a really awkward situation, maybe a best friend or a friend or maybe even an enemy, and something happens maybe between your kids or something, and you know deep down that you got to go talk to the parent. How do you feel about that? No, you don't want to feel about that. You you don't feel good about that. Well, remember, this guy comes from a family of the people who've been disappointing God, the priests. And here he is, he's going to hear a word from the Lord, and now he's got to go out on the streets, in the public places, in the gates, in the city gates, and proclaim a message that, by the way, doesn't show any fruit in all the 40 years that he ever does it which just proves to us that it's not success as the world sees it. Did you get 3,000 converts or three converts or what? What was going on? No, success in God's economy is how faithful you are to what God's called you to. That's what success is, folks. Here this guy is. You talk about somebody that probably would run the other way. Look what he says. Or look what the Lord says about him. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now, I want you to just stop right there. See, this is the message for us with anxiety, with insecurity, with, um, uh, you know, don't know where we fit in. Do people like me? Do people not like me? Well, here's, here's a message for us. Before I formed you, God says, I knew you. And if you went over to Psalm 139, I won't do it right now, David says the same stuff. David knew he was known by God, and so does Jeremiah now. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You folks, before you were in the womb, before you were knit together, God was fashioning grandparents and great-grandparents and bringing all this stuff together, wherever it was, to you. That's, that's incredible. You're, you're, you matter. You're important. 
And here's what I think the world teaches that's a real mistake. (laughs) Well, it's not a real mistake. But most of us concentrate on what we think about God. But I want you to see something here. It's not so much what we think about God. It's when you know what God thinks about you that's the beautiful thing. (laughs) Are you catching what I just said? Yes, of course we want to know about God and know as much. But when you know you're known by God, all the pressure rolls off. He knew you before you were even in your mother's womb, which says a lot. You're important, but it also says that, you know, of course, with the abortion debate, come on, folks. we're, We're people before we're even in the womb. We are important. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I set you apart. You, in fact, have works that God wants you to walk in. You can just go look at Ephesians 2, chapter 10. You can do it later. But God called you for good works before you were in the womb. And just go walk in them. Isn't that exciting to find the work that God has found or called you to? And here he says it to Jeremiah. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a, a prophet to the nations. This was going to be his job. Now, this is funny. Because if you think about it, he comes from a family of priests. So on one hand, you might think, and we don't really know, but it's just kind of thinking about how Jeremiah would think. On one hand, you'd think, well, Jeremiah would say, well, priests, they have all the instructions. It's the same thing every day. I'm going to, you know, get up and light some incense. I'm going to take in some animals and, you know, sacrifice them. And then later on, I'm going to, you know, teach about the law. And then I'm going to get up and do I'm going to do it again. That's what a priest does. But a prophet, a prophet. I mean, come on, folks. Some of these prophets have to lay down on their side and have no clothes on and cook in the dung, you know, with dung and, uh, you know, do some really wild stuff. And they have to go to places that they don't even know they need to go to. And in fact, one prophet, Jonah, didn't even want to go. So he ran the other way and God put him in a whale, brought him back. I mean, prophet, difficult. He, he says, I ordained you a prophet to the nations. You're going to proclaim the word. Then said I, ah, Lord God, behold, I can't speak for I'm young. Now, somebody else said something similar to that. Remember this? Moses said that when God called him. Wait a minute, you, you want me? I mean, I can't even speak that well, he said. And God said, oh, all right, no problem. I'll give you your older brother. He'll speak for you. You know, it was like Moses trying to get out of everything. Here he says, well, my goodness, I'm so young, which tells us something. It tells us a lot of things. One thing it tells us is the New Testament says, don't despise our youth. In other words, don't look down on the youth because they're young. They're important, and they have lots of wisdom in the Lord, and they can do it, man. So let's not be these old fogies who just kind of press them down. No, let's let them raise up and do their ministries. That's one thing. But he said, I am a youth. I can't speak. I'm not eloquent. I haven't been trained. And God says, man, I got you right where I want you, doesn't he? That's what he says to you, and that's what he says to to me. Paul said this. It's almost too hard to believe that Paul could say this. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, 
but our sufficiency is from God, 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Can you imagine Paul saying that? The smartest guy of all time in you know, the, the law, <laughs> built the whole, you know, converted and built the whole church around the Mediterranean. He says, hmm, it's not sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but it's all from Christ. See, when you are in a place where you know you're called and you feel like you're not equipped or inadequate to do it, God says, perfect. We can work with that. Because now the Lord will give you the resource and strength and the ability and the equipping and all the things that you need to go do the ministry. So I'm asking you, what is your ministry? What has God called you to? If you're one who just keep blowing it off, don't do it. Step out. You say, well, I'm not sure I'm equipped. He will equip you. That's what this message is. Here's another thing that I find interesting, maybe a little bit different take. He grew up as a pastor's kid. I wonder if there's a little bit of reluctance because he sees what pastors go through. And he sees the sacrifice. And he sees, you know, when people are critical and hurt, (laughs) the pastor or the family, which I'm not trying to get you to uh, empathize with me, But I wonder if that's happened. The sacrifice, the being away from home, the serving other people but not serving. Do you you understand why pastor's kids are in rebellion? One reason is is because they see what their family goes through. And some don't want to deal with it. You know, the Bible tells us too, though, to train up a child in the way that uh, he or she should go. The Bible also says in Deuteronomy, whatever you're doing, waking up, going to sleep, driving in the car, on the camel, whatever, talk about the Lord to me and the things of the Lord. Just talk about the Lord to me. Deuteronomy 6, it says that. You want to know one way to get your children or your kids reluctant about the things of the Lord? Talk bad about the people and the things that are going on at church. When you're at home, are you talking about you know, the pastor or the worship team or, and, and they're not so good and, man, I can't stand that one or I don't like that pastor? Well, man, watch doing that in front of the kids. You're going to grow them up to be reluctant churchgoers and they're going to see how much turmoil you are and it causes you. Now, if people have hurt you at church, of course, and go see somebody about it and talk about it, I'm not saying stuff down something that's bad at church. But what I am saying is be careful about your criticism about the things that are going on at church. You could have legitimate criticisms. Come see the uh, pastoral staff or the leadership, no problem. But watch criticizing in front of the kids. They get an idea of church as like, man, if that's what that's like, I don't want anything to do with it. Well, here, uh, uh, Jeremiah is reluctant. There might be uh, many different reasons why he is reluctant, but the Lord said to Jeremiah, look at this in verse 7, hey, don't say I'm a youth, for you're going to do this. You're going to go to all whom I send you. I'm going to make it evident and plain where you are to go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. I'm going to give you the words to say. I'm going to show you where to go, and I'm going to give you the words to say, and Don't be afraid of their faces. Why? Why would you not? I don't want you to be afraid because my presence, me, the Lord, is going to be with you and I'll deliver you, says the Lord. You say, well, okay, what about in this day? Well, the same thing applies. That really is the gospel of grace right there. You know, that really is the gospel of grace. 
Because what the Bible tells us, it's no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us, doesn't he? And the Bible says in a lot of different places that he'll give you the words to say. He'll give you wisdom if you'll just ask liberally. Don't be afraid of man. What can man do to us? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me, Hebrews 13 says. Wouldn't wouldn't it be just beautiful if we just learned that one? Of course, we're to live in peace with all men. But what if we just didn't care? Not in the wrong way in the right way. We care about people, of course, and we care what they think and love, but what if we, when we received criticism, we were just happy with pleasing the Lord, to stop being men-pleasers and being God-pleasers. Here he says, whatever I command you, you're going to speak. Don't be afraid, for I am with you to deliver, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me. That's similar to Isaiah. In Isaiah, though, Isaiah's mouth was touched because he was unclean. Here, the Lord puts forth and touches his mouth because he's putting the words in his mouth. Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. I'm going to give you the word. See how I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Wow, look what the job is. Look at the job. Here's what God's calling this young man, son of a priest, family of priests, doesn't really want, reluctant to go, has some issues with pleasing men before pleasing God. And if I asked all of us in this room, if any of us had those issues, all of us would put our hands up, right? Here he is, and the Lord says, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to put your words in your mouth, but through these words, I'm setting you over nations and kingdoms, nations and kingdoms. I'm a kid. Yes, and you're going to go, and here's what you're going to do. Several of these uh, words are break down. You're going to root out, pull down, destroy, throw down, and then you're going to do this. You're going to build and plant. Sometimes you have to take some things down or a step back before you can grow, and that's what he's telling him. And so to begin this mission, here's what God does. To begin the mission, might be you're saying to yourself, my goodness, or Jeremiah must be saying to himself, okay, what? I mean, okay, all right. What do I do now, Lord? And the Lord says, okay, here's what we'll do. I'm going to give you three visions. And here's the first vision, verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? He's giving him sort of like the audiovisual show and tell thing at school. What do you see? What do you see? What's this, right? And Isaiah says back, or says back to the Lord, I see a branch of an almond tree. I see a branch of an almond tree. Now, for you, it would be like uh, cherry blossoms or dogwoods or I don't know. I'm not good at this stuff. It's the sign of spring, something coming back to life. In Israel, there are these almond tree branches with blossoms coming. And the Lord said to me, ah, oh, you've seen well for... I am ready to perform my word. In different translations, it actually says, I'm watching to perform my word. Now, let me geek out on this for a second. Something's going on here in the Hebrew that you don't know because you don't know Hebrew, and neither do I. Just look it up in uh, Blue Letter Bible. And here's what's going on. I see a branch of an almond tree... And that word for the almond tree there and the branch is a word that's shaked, 
in the Hebrew. And when it says, you have seen well, for I am watching to perform my word or ready to perform my word, it's almost the same word with one letter, shakad. The Lord is saying there, listen, I'm like the spring. I'm ready and awake to see my word or to remember my word, not see my word, to remember my word and I'm peering over and I'm watching to make sure it comes to pass. That's what he's saying right there. So somebody who's reading this in the Hebrew is like, whoa, God really is tuned in to his promises. He watches and if he makes sure his promises come to pass, even in judgment, that's what that's saying. So the Lord said to me, you've seen well, for I'm ready to perform my word. Wow, God not only gives promises, he waits for and watches and makes sure his word comes to pass. See, you need to know that, and I need to know that. What's God saying in his word that's hitting you in the heart? Well, not only is that a promise to you, he's watching your life and making sure it comes to pass. My goodness. Well, here he says this, and the word of the Lord, verse 13, came to me the second time saying, what do you see? And here comes the second vision. I'm giving you a mission to root out, pull down, and then build up. Oh, really? Okay, well, what do, you, what, what do I need to know? I mean, this is going to be, it's like Tom Cruise, right, in Mission Impossible when he gets the tape recorder, and it, right? And then it turns it off at the end, and it blows up and smokes. Here's the mission papers. The first thing is you're going to see a vision of the almond tree, because you got such a difficult journey ahead, you need to know some things, Jeremiah. You need to know this. You were called by me. You, you folks are in a battle, Ephesians 6. You need to know something. You were called by him, and you were called to walk in certain works. You get this? And what's really important is not how much you know about the Lord. That is important. It's beautiful, though, when you know that the Lord or what the Lord thinks of you, like the Song of Solomon, how he loves you and keeps pursuing you. That's beautiful. And he'll do these sorts of things. He takes people who are quote-unquote inadequate. He takes the foolish things of the the world to confound the wise. It's okay if you don't have all the things that you think you need for the gifts. I'll supply those to you if you're called he will equip. And then he gives them the mission, root down, pull up, build up. Here's the first thing. Know this deep down in your bones that not only do I give promises, I watch over them to make sure they come to pass. Oh, that's amazing. And then he goes this way. The Lord says to me, you've seen well, but here's something the second time. What do you see? And I see a boiling pot. Here comes part of the mission. And it's facing away from the north. So think about this. The boiling pot is steaming. Watch this. The north is up that way. It's tipped over this way towards the south. That's what that's saying. In other words, something or someone is coming from the south to pour out scalding hot judgment. The word of the Lord came. I see a boiling pot and it's facing away from the the north. And the Lord said to me, out of the north calamity shall break forth. Where was Babylon? It's north of Israel. All the inhabitants of the land, on all the inhabitants of the land, for behold, I'm calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord, they'll come and teach, or come and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. You know what that's saying? 
That's saying that this power from the north is going to come and humiliate Israel or Judah. And here's why. Because if you sat your throne at the gate, that was the most important part of the city. It's as if we're mocking you. And that's what the Lord says is going to happen to them. I'm going to set at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls around and against all the cities of Judah. I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness. And remember, it was... It was so wicked, I told you, Ezekiel 8 and 9, they actually took some idols into the temple. But folks, when you go to Jerusalem with us, unless the Lord comes back first, you're going to see a valley right beside the Temple Mount. I mean, you, you, you could hit two drivers. May Some of us could, some of us couldn't. But you could hit a golf shot twice over into this valley. And in that valley, many of the kings of Judah were participating in child sacrifice. That's what was happening. And he says, I'm going to utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness because, look at this, they've forsaken me. They've come away from me. They've burned incense to other gods. In other words, they violated the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments aren't there so God can prove how big of an ogre is. It shows his loving heart that he wants us to be with him and to be safe, tucked away with him. But they went and forsook him and burned incense to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. In other words, they became the God. Oh, come on. That's America. Therefore, he says, prepare yourself. That's the way of like, they would say, gird up your loins or roll up your sleeves, we would say. Something difficult about ready to happen and you get, need ready for work, God says to Jeremiah. And speak to them all that I command you. Speak to them all. Gird up your loins. Roll up your sleeves. You're going to do something difficult here. Can you imagine this reluctant young guy? Okay, <laughs> Really? Don't be dismayed, though, before their faces, he says, lest I dismay you before them. Ooh. I mean, come on. You know what I'm, he's got to be saying right here? Lord, I need your help. I don't know what you're asking me to do exactly. I'm kind of getting the drift here, but I'm going to need your help. For behold, I have made you this day. And God says, okay, I know you need my help. I'm calling you to something hard and difficult. Oh, by the way, Christian, you're called to the battle with full armor, spiritual weapons. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land. Look at this. Against the kings of Judah. You're going to have to march in and talk to people like Josiah and those other teams and chains I told you about, and I got them in my chicken scratch paper there. You're going to have to march in, and you're going to have to tell them very difficult things, and you're going to have to go into royalty, princes. And look, don't, don't just blow by this. You're going to have to go talk as a strong, fortified, iron-pillared, bronze-walled guy against the priests. Well, folks, that's his family. And against the people of the land, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Again, there's the gospel. What does the Bible say he will do with us? It says that by his grace, right? By his grace, he's going to turn us into 
people who can fight the battle, but not fight like, like humans do, but fight this battle with things like love and forgiveness and truth and gentleness, and self-control. Self-control, yeah, just watch Facebook and the Christians and politics. You can see it all out there. Mm. Self-control, gentleness, love, etc., etc. That's how you're going to fight, and God's going to prepare you to be a strong person, just like Jeremiah. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You ever wondered what that was about? Just lean into the grace of God. Spend time with the Lord. He'll build you up and he'll call you and he'll call us to speak to all these people, kings and princes and priests or just regular people. And they're not going to prevail against you. What does he say again? For I am with you. Well, look at this. The Lord also came and said and cried in the hearing of Jerusalem saying this, Thus says the Lord. I re- this is important. Here God makes his case against Judah. He's going to go, I'm going to tell you why we're going to go through this, Jeremiah. I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal. Remember, God and Israel were as it was if they were married. God speaks in that language in the Old Testament. When you went after me in the wilderness, what, what is one of the things that God says shows the love of Israel for God? Because they submitted and walked with him in the wilderness, their husband. Isn't that interesting? They submitted and they walked with him in the wilderness in a land not sown. Wow, that showed how much they loved him. They followed him. And Israel was holiness to the Lord, beautiful. And the first fruits for First fruits of his increase, all that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, uh, uh, says the Lord. They're protected. They're protected. That's what that is saying. First fruits of his increase, all that devour him will offend. God will be offended by people who strike at Israel. That's what that's saying. Hear, hear the word of the Lord, verse 4, O house of Jacob and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice have your fathers found in me? That they have gone far from me, have followed idols. You left me. In other words, if if God was writing a complaint in divorce, you know when you go to divorce court, you have to write a complaint in divorce. And nowadays we just say irreconcilable differences. God doesn't do, and, and the judge just says, okay, it's over. God doesn't do that. God says, no, I'm going to write a complaint of divorce, and it's all your fault. (laughs) And look at it. He says, you've gone far from me. You've followed idols. You've become idolaters, just like we have. Admit it. Are there things in your heart that are idols, that have your affection more than God's affection? Come on, folks. It can be relationships. It can be family. Are you to love your family? Of course. But is God there? It can be sports or hobbies or music or image, power, money. You could have all kinds of idols. Verse 6, neither did they say, where is the Lord? In other words, they don't even seek after the Lord anymore. It's just so blasé now. Who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? They brought, he brought us up out of the land of Egypt, and we won't go spend time with him. He brought us out of sin. How's your prayer life? How's my prayer life? 
who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought, shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwell. I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruits and its goodness. Do you see how the husband, and as God here, wanted to provide for his bride? That's interesting. To eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests... Can you imagine how hard he's thinking? Oh my goodness, i got to say this to the priest. The priest didn't say, where is the Lord? Do you know, folks, I really do, and, and, I, and I'll start with me. Are we just doing, you know, running through the book so we can get through the book, or are our hearts to come to the Lord as the people who are the pastors and the leaders of the church there, what they were saying was, you, what he's saying is you just did all the sacrifices and the rituals and nothing about your heart was in this. We got pastors and, and leaders in the church doing the same thing, playing the religious game. Help, not... I'm not saying this for me, but pray for the pastors that they would get alone with the Lord and be, be uh, on, uh, consistent about it, that they would seek after him, not just the, the, the organization of, of church. They don't even know me. Oh, my. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that don't profit. Therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges. For pass beyond the coast of Cyprus and see, send a Kedar and consider diligently, and see if there has been such a thing. In other words, even the pagan countries don't do what you're doing. Has a nation changed its gods? They don't change their gods. They just keep after the same ones. You folks have actually supplanted. You, you've knocked me out and put other gods in for me. That's what he's saying. No other, even the pagan uh, countries don't do that. But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this and be terribly afraid. It actually means let the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Be de- very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. Catch this. Here's what the bride had done. Israel, the people of God. Here's what us as the people of God do often. Watch this. You've gone and hewn yourselves cisterns. You've gone and created place where you want to drink. And he doesn't say it, but I'm going to say it. Don't be shocked by it. You're so stupid, you made your cisterns with cracks in them. So that when you were drinking... The nasty water, when you could have had the fountain of life from me, you were drink, not only were you drinking nasty water, but you had cracks in the cisterns so they were flooding out and you couldn't even get enough to drink. In other words, when you go and try to find satisfaction in anything but me, it's always going to be like a broken cistern. It might even give you some you know, coolness and a little bit of liquid for a while, but it's dirty and rotten, and you're just going to run out of it. Is Israel, verse 14, a servant? Is he a homeborn slave? Why is he plundered? The young lions roared at him and growled. They made his land waste. His cities are burned without. 16, and the people of Noph and Tapanes have broken the crown of your head. Have you not brought this on yourself and that you have forsaken the Lord your God when you led you in that way? And now, why take your road to Egypt? 
they just kept getting sillier and sillier and dumber and dumber. They kept taking, instead of going back to God and depending on him, they would make alliances. And you'd drink the waters of Sihor, or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Don't do that. Check out this principle. Your own wickedness is going to correct you. At some point, the Lord just says this to us, doesn't he? Okay, you want it your way? I'll back up. You just have your way, and we'll see where that leads you. And that's what he's saying right there. And your backsliding will rebuke you. Know, therefore, and see that it's an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord. And the fear of me is not in you. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom, says the Lord God of hosts. For of old, verse 20, I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not transgress. When on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing the harlot, First of all, I don't know if you caught this, but the first part of that is it says these people rejected being a servant. Jesus said, hey, you guys need refreshing, you're hurting, you you need rest. Well, why don't you just come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And if you do this one thing, Oh my, you're going you're gonna to feel way much better, or you're going to feel much, much better. It's just yoking yourself up to me. In other words, you want to find life, be a servant. You want to lose your life, have your own way. Here, he, he indicted them, and they played this harlot. How then have you turned me into the gen- degenerate plant of an alien vine? See all these different uh, connections in the Bible? Because we're supposed to be fruitful branches of a true vine, John 15. Look, 22, for though you wash yourself with lie and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked. You can't clean yourself up before me, says the Lord God. But he can get rid of our stain. God, who is faithful and just, if we'll just confess our sins to him, will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How can you say I'm not polluted? Is that America or what? Back in their time, they're like, what? What's wrong with us? What do you mean? We're going to church. We gave money. We even did some sacrifices. How can you say that we're polluted? That's what we say. I have not gone after the ball. See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary, which is a camel, breaking loose in her ways. A wild donkey. That's what you're like, Israel, to the wilderness. You sniff at the wind in her time of mating. Who can turn her away? You're like a a camel or a, a donkey in mating. You're just running after other people. Verse 25, withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst, but you said there is no hope. In other words, they're saying, that's no use. I'm just going to give in to everything and I must have it. Sound like addictions. And it doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol. It can be lots of addictions, shopping or food or other things. You said, well, there's no hope. No, for I've loved aliens and after them, I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go for it. As the thief is ashamed when he is found out, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets, they say to a tree, you're my father, and to a stone you give birth to me. We laugh when we read that, but that's what people say. Mother Earth, Mother Nature, and all that sort of thing. For they have turned their back to me and not their face, but in their time of trouble, look at this, they will say, arise and save us. It's like doing tarot cards, and then when you get in trouble with it, Lord, help me out on this. They still ask for help. 
But where are your gods, verse 28, that you've made them for yourselves? Let them arise if they can save you. And the reason is that they can. He's saying this. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why will you plead with me? You all have transgressed against me, says the Lord. In vain I've chastened your children. They received no correction. Your sword was devoured, your prophets, like a destroying line. O generation, see the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land to darkness? Why do my people say we are lords? We will come no more to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? She forgot her wedding dress. That's what he's saying. You're like a bride who forgot your wedding dress. You, you didn't even... How could you forget about me? You forgot about the whole thing. You just forgot. Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Why do you beautify your way to seek love? Therefore, you have also taught the wicked women your ways. Also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I've not found it by secret search, but plainly on all these things. Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you because you say I have not sinned. Why do you gad about so much to change your way? Also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. Indeed, you'll go forth from him with your hands on your head like this. Look, for the Lord has rejected your trusted allies and you will not prosper by them. Look, down there through 34 and 35. Listen, when a nation turns away from the ways of God and worshiping God, Guess what starts to happen? The culture starts, the people start to exploit one another. Sound familiar? The poor here and the lives of the poor and the innocents and there's anger and distrust and exploitation and power over the vulnerable and the vulnerable being overpowered. And then look back in verse 37 or as we end. He says, you're going to go forth from here as prisoners. And that's exactly what happened in 586 B.C. Now, you're saying, well, well, that's not a very good message. (laughs) Well, it isn't, except for one thing. Well, lots of things, but it isn't a good message. But I want you to go over. You're like, man, God has got a harsh. What's going on? See, there's something astounding that's just one chapter away. I'll give you the verse. Look over to verse 14. In chapter 3, verse 14, can you imagine a bride or a husband, either one, that has done this to you? (laughs) I mean, a bride or a husband, if you've been hurt that way, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to, you know, bring it back up, but, you know, that's hurtful stuff. And yet, this has happened to God, and he relates it to a husband-wife Relation, And then in verse 14 of chapter 3, just one chapter away, look what he says. There's always God pursuing the unfaithful. Isn't that fabulous? Return, O backsliding children, for I'm married to you. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family, and I'll bring you back to Zion. I'll give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Here's what I want to say. God's calling us to be in a battle. Each one of you, wherever you go, he's asking you, he's saying, I'm going to have you say grace and truth out there in the world. As, it, as I give you the words, as I give you my nature, you're going to live out in the world gracefully and truthfully. Uh, but listen, <clears throat> some of the people or many of the people or even you as a backslider are going to ignore me and walk a different way. But 
I want you to see the nature of God. Even back then in the Old Testament, don't say the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God. He's not. God still pursues her, the unfaithful. He's faithful to the unfaithful. He's in pursuit of the one that doesn't even want anything from him or anything to do with him. He's in pursuit of the one who has committed spiritual harlotry against him. He still wants to be in covenant with them. See, these are the messages as we go out, we'll be saying to people. And the Bible tells us that to one person, these messages that you're going to be sending will be aroma of death, but to others, it'll be the aroma of Christ. But God doesn't call you to quote-unquote success. He calls you to faithfulness. So let's pray. Well, Lord... Thank you for this time, and thank you for Jeremiah and uh, his life, and what an encouragement he is. And we just ask, Lord, that you'd help us to learn these things deep down. By your Spirit, you'd take your word that you say you'll put in us and work them out in our lives by your Spirit so that we can participate in your program of bringing many, many souls into the kingdom of God. Help us to be loving and patient and kind, even with the unfaithful or enemies. In Jesus' name, amen.